I think that gets to the heart of what hospitality is. It's trying to give people who walk through the door the best possible experience. So for me as an ED doc, even on the micro scale, it is trying to recognize that people who come in are people who come in an extremely vulnerable place. And when you see them, they not only want you to take care of all of these infinite amount of worries that they have and also address whatever life detrimental situations they might encounter, but also to feel at ease. And really, I think that's the start of it. Welcome back to another episode of Nights Do That. The medical world is rapidly changing and the way that medical professionals work with patients is too. Today's guest, Michael Chang, is a great example of that. Michael is the first UCF student to graduate doing a dual track in medicine while also earning a master's of hospitality, which is no walk in the park. We talk about what drew him to these fields, how he plans to use them in the future and the adversity that he's faced along the way. Michael is wildly driven with a passion for his work and a lust for life, and I'm super excited for you to meet him. So you are the first UCF student, and I want to make sure I get this right, to earn a master's of hospitality on top of your medical degree. That's correct. That's awesome. <laughs> it's something all right. What drew you to the fields of medicine and hospitality? I think actually they were two separate paths. So my interest for medicine started early. Would be lying if I didn't say I was crafted for a little bit. I'm the child of immigrants, so my dad's Taiwanese and my mom is Chinese. And I once remember a comedic sketch, which was, that one generation, they want everyone to be lawyers and doctors because you can kind of uh, live that American dream. But in high school, my mom collapsed very suddenly, very randomly. And that's when medicine actually became personal. Mm-hmm. And then as you know, you go through the process of undergraduate and try to make yourself more, find your way in the world, find out why medicine is for you. I think we all have our own narratives as to why it ultimately becomes important to us. For me, it was a collection of being able to be close to healthcare, seeing both that personal and professional fulfillment from the math sciences, but also the humanities. And yeah, as you go through medical school, I think you find reasons why you come to love it more as you both know the beautiful things and the like fatal flaws of the system. And you kind of reconcile that. For hospitality, I come from a very humble background. I grew pretty poor. I lived in a single bedroom with my parents up to like the age of 10. Also, went through a public school system that was really rough, subject to bullying, a lot of racism. I even got stabbed as a kid. So that was really tough times. I really enjoyed the aspects of serving other people. I was a server at some point. I did some bartending in undergraduate. So I always liked getting to know people outside of the heady spaces of like advanced classrooms and stuff like that. When I came to UCF, hospitality wasn't on my mind, but during the second look, our Dean, Dean German, who is one of the most respected people I've ever met, had this vision for it and really strongly sold it every year. Everyone's always very hype about it from the beginning. But as you go through medical school, I think that starts to come down a little bit. But it was always something on the table for me. And as I became more and more interested in it, especially going through some clinicals and seeing how there wasn't this intrinsic service to a lot of medicine, I really became more passionate about and thought I could do something with this in my life. Can you talk to me about where you see the two combining together in your career? Sure. So first of all, I'll give you a overview as to how it might look in kind of a generic medical physician and then how am I play in my life. Mm-hmm. So there are many ways you could do it. You could become an entrepreneurial small business, maximizing your service on a small scale, whether or not you're a family practitioner, whether or not you make some medical adjacent practices, whether it's surgery or maybe some kind of medical spas or wellness services. Mm -hmm. There are ways in which you could be very academic about it and say, this is why we should be doing it, writing papers, doing grants, things of that nature. 
-hmm. You could be a hospital CEO and try to run your system, trying to show how this could both be profitable and good for the community. For me, I'm going to be an emergency doc. That's my first love. What we do in the department is we see everyone and often... That comes out ahead with service because you're trying to prevent your ship from sinking. So a lot of people, they think, huh, you're going to be an emergency dog. How are you going to use this? At the moment, there are many different options. I think it depends on what job opportunities are most available to me. My first love is medicine. So... I want to focus on being a good ED doc. However, depending on where I practice in the U.S., perhaps I become part of a small physician group practice and can really have a lot of autonomy in that way. Academics still is on the table if the local market is receptive to that. And then finally, I think it's just made me a more well-rounded doctor. I have a lot of interests besides medicine. I've always had some entrepreneurial folks in my background, both some friends and family who've run their own businesses. And I could see myself doing something completely unrelated as well. Wow, that's so awesome to hear. And the possibilities here, you have. It is. Or I was thinking about how mm-hmm. important it is for doctors to be hospitable, to be right. welcoming, kind, open. Oh, absolutely. To when a patient feels more comfortable with a doctor and they mm-hmm. feel more at ease in their surroundings. Mm-hmm. I think that there are shifts and movements in medicine as we become more open to the holistic aspects of it, as we become more diverse. Medical curriculum has tried to address this essence of rapport building and showing that we're not a homogenous group and how we're not just all a list of problems. Mm -hmm. I think medical schools do that across the nation to varying degrees of success. However, how do you bring that within your own practice when you're not being tested on it, when it's not part of the curriculum? I think it can be very difficult for people, especially generational wealth. A lot of people come from very upper class backgrounds. Some people don't know how to interact with people of different cultures, people who have food insecurity, people who might be the subjects of violence or who don't see themselves well represented in the media. And I think that gets to the heart of what hospitality is. It's trying to give people who walk through the door the best possible experience. So for me as an ED doc, even on the micro scale, It is trying to recognize that people who come in are people who come in an extremely vulnerable place. And when you see them, they not only want you to take care of all of these infinite amount of worries that they have and also address whatever life detrimental situations they might encounter, but also to feel at ease. And really, I think that's the start of it. Then we try to design principles, systems that are more getting to heart as to why we might have repeat people in the ED. We always hear these narratives as to people have these horrible experiences or they associate certain hospitals with really negative things. And I think as we get better as a society, we start to see that these are not things to be left on the table, but design systems in which we are really recognizing that this is part of medicine. It's tough to teach. It is. Hospitality and social skills Medical school is not designed for that. No, I, no, I, no I've never gone, but I'm, I'm being entirely. <laughs> you, you have it. I'm an acting school. It's oh, I, I used to do a little acting back in the day. Really? Yeah, I was a thespian growing up. Re- All right, yeah, it was a lot of fun here in Florida. Uh, yeah, back in the, like the Pinellas County, but it was a wow. far away school, so I only got to go to a few local things. All right, we'll have to make you break out your chops at some point here. <laughs> have you do a monologue? Yes. I have definitely met a lot of physicians, a lot of colleagues, a lot of people who I don't necessarily want to be treating me. But you know what? That's okay because I think all change is progressive. Mm -hmm. All change uh, is incremental. And that there are roles for many different people within the medical field. Uh, Your pediatricians are always going to be very different from your radiologists, your surgeons. 
And that's not to say that these stereotypes we draw are necessarily the way things will always be and have to be. But I think I've met some people with glorious strengths who might not be the nicest, but definitely have a role. The way I hope things develop is that people will put themselves in positions and vulnerabilities where they can start to at least be open to a different way of doing things. I'd like to say that medicine can't teach you to be a better person. And I think that's the core of what we often want our medical providers to be these paragons of idealism, where they are always happy to see us. They are taking care of our every needs. They are competent. They are well-respected, that they get us. And that's simply not the case often is the type. We are human. We are sometimes subject to kind of horrible working conditions. You might say, man, this, this stock's like really mean, but you might be the 30th or the 40th patient that we've seen in a stem of 12 or 14 hours, maybe even 28 hours as some of my colleagues who are now residents are doing. It's tough to reconcile. I'm not giving an excuse, but I think understanding on both parts is how we get to solutions that can affect both parties in a positive way. Remembering the humanity that's in doctors right, and people right. too. Mm-hmm. So Mike, you went through Match Day recently. Yeah, great you, time. You talked to me about Match Day, how the experience was for you. And for people who are listening who aren't familiar with what Match Day is, can you describe it for them? Oh man, I'm still getting uh, some heart palpitations just recalling it. So Match, it can be this really complicated thing. I won't go into all those details, but it's basically the culmination of four, maybe eight years if you consider pre-med or maybe an entire lifetime if you've always wanted to be a doc. Basically, it's a practice in the U.S. You have to go through what we call residency, your further training, your specialization. Even family docs will go through three years of residency. And some people like neurosurgeons go to as much as seven years. So it can be a very long path. Once you're specialized, you're on that pathway for the next three to seven, possibly longer years. And basically, this whole process is dictated by how well you did in medical school on your grades Basically, every interaction you've ever had with a physician who said you were a great student or a poor student. So it's a really stressful event, especially since most of us are in our late 20s, early 30s and balancing other pressures of starting a family, wanting to do what we want with our lives, seeking purpose. I think everyone feels a sigh of relief after match because you know that you're going to be a doctor and you're going to be changing lives. So I think that's one of the most beautiful things because you've gone through your entire four years wondering what you're going to do. And it tells you just on a piece of paper that you open at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, all the medical students across the U.S. open exactly at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So it's there's an energy in the air. For those listening who haven't seen the video, it is just it's heartwarming. It's uplifting to watch. Oh, yeah. You and your colleagues, the the smiles, the joy, the families, to put it in my perspective as an actor, I go through my years of theater school and at the end mm-hmm. of it, they're like, are you going to perform at one theater for the right. next three years? I like to think of it as you've done all the training, you've done all the work, and now you're just waiting. And you know what's going to happen. You know you're going to be whatever it is that you want it to be. And like maybe in acting school, you go to your first big break, your first big cold call, and you're like, wow, this could really be it. And you've done this monologue hundreds of times. And now you're asked to perform that one time, and this is pretty much the determining factor. Yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> but it's something we all, we all face. So you're there, you yeah. have your paper, mm-hmm. 11.59, oh, 40, 45 seconds. Sure. What's going through your head? First of all, I have to remember not to look at my Apple Watch because apparently I saw an email uh, that said, oh, but I didn't read the title. I was like, okay, let's turn that away. They send it at 11.58. 
I don't know why. Yeah, so I'm standing there and I do see some cameras, but you know, this moment's for me. So I try to recenter myself, steady my breathing. Of course, my parents are also there. They know my list. I'm pretty transparent trying to normalize that. So I, I've told everyone my list and mm-hmm. I have this thing in my hand and I feel my heart rate rising. I feel nervous and these days not a lot gets me nervous, but mm-hmm. I could feel myself tearing up because this is it. This is the next three years and this is my first major job and this is the culmination of my parents' dreams and everyone's here with me. So as you hear that countdown, you really, it's the shakes get to you, you feel it all and then you just try your best to rip over this envelope and to get inside. And on the piece of paper, I saw my first choice at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Amazing program and yeah, I just, you can watch the video, but I had pure joy. I really blanked out as to what happened next. I tried my best to keep it together, but I don't know how successful I was. And just to give a little segue, and if I had gone into any other number of programs, so we make a list, we rank our programs. It's a very complicated process. Uh, I had a list of 16 I could have ended up at. Anywhere on my one through five would have been amazing objectively. One through nine, still really good. And then Anywhere like past 12, past 13, I'm still going to be fulfilling my dream of being an ED doc. But just to have that validation that you've picked someone as your first choice and they've picked you back, it's an amazing feeling. Well, congratulations. Thank you. From the sound of it, I'll let you know when I go through my match. Oh, oh, okay. Same way. (laughs) That's awesome. Out to Dallas. Yes. Headed a little more west, staying in the south, though. Correct. I've never been, but I've heard wonderful things. Super excited. With graduation Mm -hmm. right around the corner. Mm -hmm. How has UCF, your time here, guided your career trajectory? Yeah, so I think the great thing about UCF and one of the reasons why I came here for medical school and something that the dean said during our interview day was that we don't care where you go after here. A lot of places, they want medical students who are going to stay here, develop the program, set their roots. But the dean has always said that we want you to be leaders in your respective fields and promote UCF in that way. We want to be more international minded and we want to promote this message of exceptionalism through whatever it is that you choose to do, just go and do it. Mm-hmm. So I've taken that in stride. I realized I didn't want to be in Florida early on since, you know, I've grown up here, born here, and my parents made their own way in the world. And I feel I should do the same. Mm-hmm. Although Texas is not the same as crossing the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) I just want to see and do as much as I possibly can in the time I have remaining. I'm actually going to have a few trips coming up. I'm going to Europe on Friday, and then I'm going to go to South Africa for a bit. It's going to be a lot of fun. But yeah, I've always taken that mindset as to doing your best to push yourself forward, which is one of the reasons why I chose this ED program. I see a lot of stuff. They have a great reputation in the ED world. They actually have the most ED visits by a single hospital in the entire U.S., it's uh, to over 200,000. I love being pushed in that way. So that's to answer your question of how my time at UCF has uh, informed me just to keep pushing and to keep challenging yourself and to be very growth-minded. The alumni, the people mm-hmm. who come from UCF, when they go out into the world and right. they represent UCF, mm-hmm. that's the best advertising. That's the best representation you can be for the university, just being the best that you are. Yeah, I think the results speak for themselves. We're a relatively newer medical school compared to some of the more established ones in the state of Florida. We've just passed the 10-year mark, which means we're not the new kid on the block, but I think UCF students are known for being very well-received across the nation. People like us, people like working with us, and uh, I think in the time that we've been around, we've really established ourselves. 
I'm glad that people, they like us. <laughs> I'm glad. Good to know. We do have a great mascot too, right? Well, yeah. You've got to tell me twice. <laughs> the best there is. So you were talking about how you're traveling to Europe and South Africa these coming weeks and months. That sounds super cool. I think you've deserved a trip away mm -hmm. after all the hard work you've done. So I want to ask you, you know, your hobbies and the things you do outside of right. hospitality and medicine. How does that play into your career? Yeah, so I think it comes down to trying to make yourself the most fulfilled person you can be each day, whatever that means. For me, I'm still trying my best to grow, to be the person I want to be, an adventurous spirit who is worldly and who is open to new experiences, things of that nature. And I think that often is the case, medicine can quite easily become your life for better or worse. I talk to some older physicians and I always ask them questions. What would you do differently? What's your mm -hmm. biggest regret? What's your strengths? Everyone almost always continues to love their job, but the glimmer is not quite as much there. And often it comes down to loss in other areas of their life. To become a medical school student, you often have to demonstrate volunteerism, interesting hobbies. You have to be at the top of your class, all this stuff. So you're a relatively interesting person, I would say. Not to toot my horn too much. But uh, I think you start to lose that as you become a medical school student. You start to become accustomed to studying 12 hours a day. I have a friend who's an orthopedic resident. He's about to do his trauma rotation. He works 28 hours straight, go home to sleep does the next thing the next day. So that's Q2 wow. 24 with four hour overlap. So yeah. it's really hard to have other things in your life. And I really desperately almost don't want to lose that because I think it refreshes you. It makes you see the calling not so much as work, but as something you extremely enjoy, mm -hmm. but also just one aspect of your life that makes you this really interesting, loving, fulfilled human. So that's, for me, it's not so much something I try my best to keep up. It's a priority because mm -hmm. it makes me show up better in all aspects of my life. Makes you come in as a better doctor too when you're more well-rounded. Absolutely. I would like to think that you learn more about culture, you learn more about people, their backgrounds and experiences that you can bring to the medical world. Right, right. I was in geriatrics clinic earlier this week and I had one patient who had been flying for JetBlue for many years and I am a little bit of an aviation geek so I asked what he flew, if it was the A321neos or did he do a lot of cross-country trips, stuff like that. And he was, he was pretty surprised by that. We had a good talk there and then I had another patient whose granddaughter was doing some uh, taiko drumming, some Japanese drumming. I talked to her yeah. about recently going to Japan pre-COVID and she was very surprised and told me about all the places that she loved to visit such as Osaka for the food and she wanted to go back to Nagoya and then do a Hokkaido trip. I was like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. So at least for anything, it allows me to build rapport a little bit better and to actually show them that, hey, I'm actually a human too. I'm not just living here in the hospital cellar. Well, when you go to Dallas, you said it's the one of the most happening centers there. Oh, yeah. You have a lot of people to talk to. Oh, yeah. I'm, I think you're getting a pair of boots too because apparently yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you got a hat, boots. <laughs> you come from Florida, you're going to Texas. Yeah, instant street cred. How do you balance all that, all this traveling you want to do and keeping yourself open-minded? Well, I think there's two major ways. One, you just get more efficient at monitoring your time. For a period of time, I was making sure I was in bed every day by 8.30. I was keeping track of my time, just like multitasking very well. But then I think it also comes down to priorities and mm -hmm. doing the long game, knowing that nothing's going to change immediately, but you dedicate 
aspects of your time and say this is what's going to happen. So I am not one of those people who can sleep four hours a day and survive. I need at least six to seven to thrive. So I make sure to get that in. For example, during my third year, I randomly started taking up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and practices were at 4.30 in the morning, twice a week. But I would make that as much as I could. Yeah, I had to wake up at 3.30 to make that. And then I'd be in the hospital by six. So... That was Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And I consistently did that for a while. It came in really useful, actually, when I got attacked after work one day. But uh, I was able to recently get a promotion in my belt. And it's been a big part of my community experience. Yeah, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is such a cool thing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's just so much to do in life. And I always find so many things that I've become passionate about. I just wish there was more time to do them all might be tough if you're talking to somebody about UFC and they're like, oh, where'd you go to school? Oh, <laughs> UCF. Yeah, yeah. So you've mentioned how you faced adversities. You, mm-hmm. you earlier was talking about what you faced growing up, familial things you'd gone through and mm-hmm. attacked after work. Oh, yeah. Which is wild. Kind of crazy. How do you deal with the adversity in your career? Mm-hmm. How has that affected you to what you do now? I think I have a lot of different systems, ways I do it. So one, my instant go-to defense is, eh, at least no one's dying. Sometimes people are actually dying, so that kind of puts things in perspective. In your career specifically. <laughs> in my career, that's a little different. Yeah, but I mean, some of the more practical things that I will do as well. I try my best to be a whole human. Like I said, I mm-hmm. do things I love, and it's not just a constant grind. There is dedicated time aside. Now, that might just be like 15 minutes of meditation in the mornings Why I make a cup of uh, coffee on my Chemex, but sometimes that's enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to a core group of friends that when I really feel down or I really just need someone to listen, to talk, that I can count on them to show up. And likewise, I do the same for them. Mm -hmm. It is realizing that there is just so much more to life and that I am blessed, truly blessed to be doing what I'm doing and to be where I am in life. I meet so much more resilient people in my life, people who've lost limbs, people who've lost family, people who are just trying to survive but are optimistic or they're hopeful or they're just trying their best. I know where I've come from culturally, where my parents have been, where my mom tells me stories of how she saw death and torture in China growing up or how my father came to this country with nothing. And so as someone who didn't have the easiest childhood, it was still better than what they went through. So there's all those aspects. But really, I think just knowing what it is that you need and living your life in service of that while also like having a purpose. I I think that's truly how I survive. At the end of the day, regardless of what I'm doing, I can find comfort in the fact that I'm here and I'm saving someone's life. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, there are some days that's a little bit worse off, some days when you really feel like you're so helpless. However, that, I think, mission pushes me forward. And then wellness, meditation, all that is very important to me. I actually developed a course for UCF College of Medicine as an elective, and I just finished that up. In addition to one on financial literacy, we're going to apply for a grant and see if we can spread this mission among our UCF students. Something that's been really underdeveloped in medical school curriculum, but hopefully it helps people just yeah. like it's helped me. To stay grounded and keep yourself mm-hmm. on the level. Yeah probably be pretty easy to get carried away in oh yeah like a deep rabbit hole spiral when you're seeing emergency so during your time here at ucf mm-hmm. the internships and the experiences that you've done what have been some of your favorite memories 
Oh, God. There's too numerous to count. I think I would put them down into three major categories, which Mm -hmm. is recognition by peers, colleagues, family, recognition by patients, and then recognition for yourself. So there's a couple big milestones in medical school. So when we finish those, it's like, wow, we're halfway to being a doctor. We're three quarters of the way or we're almost there. We take these huge board certifications that have historically always had determined where we're going to go think of the SAT on steroids and they're like 10 hour exams, 320 questions long, a minute and a half each. And you spend eight weeks dedicated just studying for this nonstop. And it compiles like the first two years or then the third year of medical school. So completing those always is like a huge weight off your shoulder. So that's great. And celebrating with everyone. And there is recognition from patients. I remember so many experiences that I've had. I can think of two off the top of my head right now. When I was early on in my surgery rotation, I was just getting started in clinicals and you transfer book work to clinical experience. And I had this patient who was in the hospital for weeks and I was there early in his care and I was actually fortunate enough to be there upon discharge. And he started off very delirious, didn't say a word. That went on for a week. He couldn't eat, he couldn't talk. He was just kind of presence and slowly he started to recover so by the end when he was discharged he was telling me all his future plans how thankful he was to get to see me these couple of times and you know how he was going to go home and tell his kids that he loved him and how fortunate he was to be in his situation of recovery and that was that was a really beautiful time because you saw this arc of his story and it was amazing an experience that I also remember because it's the first patient where it's oh wow I really saw you recover from death's door. So that was amazing. More recently, as you become a fourth year, you're entering residency soon. You're expected to perform at the level of a new doc. So I saw this one patient on the ED who hadn't seen a doc for 20 years. Wasn't the best historian, kind of a little bit scatterbrained, but uh, she came in with a complaint that was like, "Eh, pretty serious and could be anything. So I did this thing that I recalled from medical school called for BPPV or uh, benign paralyxismal. And I did this procedure where you move the head from one side, then another side, then raise them. It's a little bit complex to explain, but I think I like fixed her. And that was really amazing. I was like, huh, okay, cool. Just a little bit of dark humor. She was blind. You read a textbook and you're trying to recall something from a year ago. So I had my YouTube in the <laughs> corner uh, on mute and I was saying, okay, I am doing this correct. Okay. We ultimately had to admit her piece. She hasn't seen a doctor for 20 years. Could be a stroke, but she immediately felt better. And I I think that might have been it. YouTube saves lives. (laughs) And then finally, I would say recognizing that I've made this journey and made huge strides. There are a couple moments when you're like, wow, I'm doing this. Like I'm sticking the needle in. I am like repairing this broken lip. I am stapling this skull shut. Circling back to something I mentioned earlier, I was coming home from work. And I stayed an extra couple hours. It was like 8 p.m. I was supposed to get off like 5 because I came in at like 6 a.m. And then I was getting tacos truck off Orange Ave. And out of nowhere, this guy starts like trying to get really friendly up all my space. I'm wearing scrubs too. He's saying some slurs. You're kind of like, huh, this is a little off. And out of nowhere, he just starts attacking, starts swinging, starts going for it. And I'm like, oh my God, uh, what should I do? Of course, the owner of the taco bus, he holds up. He's like kind of monitoring the situation, but I'm able to disengage. I almost have him in what we call a standing arm lock. I'm thinking of breaking his arm, but 
you know, I think that would make trouble sending someone to the ED. So I ended up being able to disengage, call for some help, get the police involved. And I was able to really protect myself and nothing really hit my face. So that was good. I talked to one of my bosses like the next day. I actually took a picture just so that I could keep everything documented in case I can't go to work the next day or yes. they gave me some hardness. He said, oh, man, this patient was actually in here a couple days ago for uh, either some drug activity or some alcoholism. I was like, huh, OK. Uh-huh. All right. Jeez. But I f- that was a personal victory because I was like, huh, you know, you put yourself in a dangerous situation or you're in a de- dangerous situation, you're able to disengage, you're able to protect yourself. And right. that was the culmination of all those 4.30 a.m. trainings. And also just like that I was able to keep my wits about me because in the ED, we will encounter dangerous circumstances. I've had so many different things happen to me. People threaten to throw things at me. People get a little bit belligerent. People say a lot of racial slurs, even here in Florida. And uh, yeah, it's just knowing that it didn't phase me and I was able to keep going along and it has really shown me that I've grown as a person these last four years, four or five years, actually. It's important to have that, the external. I think that's right. a lot of trouble comes when you don't have the internal because mm-hmm. then it's just this seeking validation. Yeah. What advice would you give somebody who wants to pursue medical school or maybe even just pick up a second degree? You know, it's funny because I actually met with a girl earlier who had a non-traditional way into medicine. She's from, I think... Iowa, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. a Midwest state, and she wants to do medicine. And she asked me about this hospitality thing. And uh, she actually was an event manager before, had no undergrad degree. The first thing, as weird as it sounds, we always say to prospective pre-meds or people who want to do medicine is, if you find anything else in your life, do that. Because this is hard work. This is delayed gratification for 10 years. This is debt crippling debt often. This is, you know, a lot of thankless nights. This will challenge you in ways that you never imagined. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best jobs in the world. For some people, it is a calling and that you will get to do things that you will never have imagined. You will get to show up for people in incredible ways. And that trying to keep that spark alive is probably the most important thing. I mentioned earlier how medicine can become your life. And some people, they do want it to become everything and at the expense of families, at the expense of their own health, Mm -hmm. and more service to them if that's what they want to do. But I think the rest of us really want to find that balance. And as a result, keep the spark alive, but also do yourself a service and keep your own like inner fire going. Mm -hmm. Show up for your family, show up for yourself. And realize that it's going to be a long path, but at the end of the day, once you get there, it will have been worth it, hopefully. And that you figure out the way in which you want to live this life, and that's how you'll be the best position you can be. Something that you're still hoping to do. There's always exercise I've heard, and it's imagine what people would say at your eulogy. I do have aspirations to want to do something great, perhaps with hospitality, perhaps being known for someone who put service at the forefront of medicine and wasn't just uh, someone who gave lip to it, as we've seen Mm -hmm. in the medical industrial complex. I also just want to make sure that people know that I was someone full of love. I really cared about my patients, that I was a good mentor and teacher and that I will be missed. So that's something I kind of always keep at the forefront of my mind whenever I'm doing something or taking on something new. I do want to get a cat and dog finally. <laughs> now you have time. Oh, no, it's a, we're about to go back oh, sorry, to the fire, sorry, my sorry. dude. <laughs> I will say a little bit silly of a goal is I want to hit um, 100 countries by the time I'm 30. This week I'll hit 50. COVID's put a damper on those plans. I wow. originally had plans to do a little bit more of Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and Central Asia, but it will be there mm-hmm. and I'll come back to it. So, Wow, Michael, 
Thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to get to hear about your story. Dallas is getting a fantastic professional. And if anything ever happens to me in Dallas, I know who to call. Oh, yeah. Just show up and I'll be there for you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so great to get to chat. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. What I love about Michael's story is the love for his work and that it has driven him in the face of adversity, along with not being defined strictly by outside voices. We'll continue talking with people changing the medical world on the next episode of Nights Do That, when my guest, Dr. Desiree Diaz, a professor in the College of Nursing, who is using simulation technology to fight stereotypes in medicine and train students like never before. I'll see you then. I feel that I have an obligation to my profession of simulationists or simulation scientists to push that envelope, to push the line. What is okay? How can we make it better? To take the risks, to think about research in a different light. So not just in simulation pedagogy and how we're going to teach it, but creating different ways of simulation, exploring holograms, exploring VR, working with colleagues to expand the science.